From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Keita Kuypers, and I'm going to be reading from my book, Beautiful in the Mouth. Many of the poems in this book take place in a wilderness landscape, and for seven months, I lived in a wilderness area in southern Oregon on the Rogue River. The poems that I wrote while I was there are filled with the things that I spent my days doing, picking berries, fishing in the river, watching the bears. This first poem is called Across a Great Wilderness Without You. Across a Great Wilderness Without You The deer come out in the evening. God bless them for not judging me. I'm drunk. I stand on the porch in my bathrobe and make strange noises at them. Language, if language can be a kind of crying. The tin cans scattered in the meadow glow, each bullet hole suffused with moon, like the platinum thread beyond them, where the river runs the length of the valley. That's where the fish are. Tomorrow I'll scoop them from the pockets of graveled stone beneath the bank, their bodies desperately alive when I hold them in my hands, the way prayers become more hopeless when uttered aloud. The phone's disconnected. Just as well, I've got nothing to tell you. I won't go inside where the bats dip and swarm over my bed. It's the sound of them, shouldering against each other that terrifies me, as if it might hurt to brush across another being's living flesh. But I carry a gun now. I've cut down a tree. You wouldn't recognize me in town. My hands lost in my pockets. Two disabused tools. I've retired from their life of touching you. River Sonnet When the old she-salmon swam to my rock, where I had sat to watch her moldering transform into a fruiting body, clock of flesh stretched above pale pebbles, ticking tail where her row lay like scattered apple blossoms, the rain adhered to the road, and her great heaving sides stained with the dull flowering shapes of fungus. I could not know what secret pain it took for her to nose against the current there, the large head scarred, flanks those of a barnacled ship. She rose from shallow water, a calcified shard bearing time's white etchings, and one dark eye, lidless, that willed I mark her drifting by. On Sunday Went down to the river, heard a plane, but didn't see it, an invisible man in the sky. I've read about him. He's supposed to be watching us. So I took off all my clothes and got in. Green water seeping up my spine, making me less than heavy. I told myself it was his hands untying the knot like apron strings at my back. Shuck me, I thought. When it got cold, I drove into town and stopped at a bar, the first one I could find. It wasn't hard, drinking my beer and easing coins in the jukebox. Sometimes you can't intellectualize need. 
a beer, a song. You put it in the body, and the body makes use of it. What I needed was a dance, a lover, a good night's sleep. Not wheel-well circles under my eyes, or sermons about sparrows. When I got home, it was dark, the hammock swinging on the porch like a crippled moon. No one was coming to give me what I needed, but I lay down and waited anyway, the air hovering, as always, just above me. The cabin that I lived in in the wilderness was two hours down a dirt road from the nearest town. It was completely off the grid. There was a a little CB trucker-style radio if I needed to radio out for help, but it was very isolated, and before I went to live in the cabin, I thought about how dangerous it would be. And part of the reason I couldn't stop thinking about that was because a few months before I moved to the cabin, a family from the Bay Area, driving back from spending Thanksgiving in Portland, got stuck on the same back road that I drove every day. When they were lost, trying to drive out to the coast, and the father died looking for help. This next poem is called Oregon Spring, and it's about that family. In the gully where last winter the tourists died, wild yellow irises creased the hillside with their brown-veined palms. The papers said they found him face down in the spring-fed creek. I know the place where its bubbling starts, water like a still new scar in the granite. If beauty doesn't matter, then what does? I'm glad at least one man didn't die in an uglier place. His daughters will visit here one day and remember his crimson vest, the way it seemed to glow as he moved away from them through the snow and the lovely trees, sugar pine, madrone, they'll still have no names for. The body or it's not. I have plans to kill a creature. The best I can explain it is, I'm afraid, of what will be left. A hoof, the jaw, one sun-dried soft as oat's ear. That walking through the woods next year, I'll find these easy relics and be reminded that winter trees are not skeletons that every metaphor for death deals in blood and bone in our stunned approximation of their sudden absence. What's the difference between a body we love and the trappings that make it? My soldier, who returns home without his hands, the fingers somewhere else, still doing their slow work of pulling a trigger. Montana is the place that I call home, and these next few poems are from my life there. Blackfoot River Wading the river in near darkness, the valley still close from the smoky fires burning twenty miles east, my brother turns to me and says, I'm telling you this for your own good. Later, I won't remember what it is he says, but only that we've crawled under a taut line of barbed wire, that the black cows in the farmer's field are just suggestions of themselves, that the smoke 
gnaws the color from the sky. I have a lover 400 miles away, and when we try to speak, there's only darkness, like two dogs pointing into a stand of trees at where they've heard the promise of sound, though what they hear is only an outline, not actually what stands among the boughs. Now the thin trestle of my brother's shoulders is all I can see moving in front of me as we near the truck, and I wonder what I'll do when he disappears. Soon we're drinking Miller's as we drive past the smoke jumper camps, out on gravel roads where we honk the horn to scatter deer, try to save something that doesn't know us. When we pull up to the house, buzzed and tired, smelling of fish, I can see my parents in there, lighting cigarettes in the dark. I think this means we must want to die, despite everything we say. And what are we moving towards in speech except words that waste their motion, the unspeakable spoken and spoken until it becomes lost in the bright keening of the stars, those unknown latitudes we measure every message against, all the things I'm afraid to say about the dog no one's cleared from the side of the road, how I see the young boys crossing under the wire fence each dusk. Where do they go? Words do not do the work. We're all liars. Better to keep silent. Wait to see the beast we've heard in among the trees. But oh my God, the owl, crossing the dim orb of that stained moon, it must be criminal the way I stand around and watch. I arrive in Paris on the first day of Montana's fishing season. Slick-bellied the plain in drizzle and steam. Understand me when I say this. Time is the compartment into which I'm putting you. Before tickets. Before tray tables. Here, I'll find the streets glassy and the Dior coats on last winter's sail rack just as sleek and black as the pelt of that wolverine we found on Rock Creek in January. Let's say time is a fish, and she swims in every stream, and you can't catch her, not with the sharpest barbs of your hooks, not with sink line or waders, not with your caddis patterns or squala nymphs. She won't take the flies you've tied with your own hands. I've been trying to explain this all along. Remember when we promised to hike every ridge line hugging the valley? Here I plan to climb every stairwell. It may take me years. To the bear who ate a ten-pound bag of sunflower seeds in my front yard this morning. When I lived in New York, and of course you can't know this, or even understand what I mean by New York, its lonesome, singular glow on the horizon as I came by bus across the New Jersey marsh, the lights just as humbling as those I saw last week when driving the back roads after midnight, I passed an incandescent cow-milking parlor, beasts rustling in their stalls, an island like a hollowed-out flame. Then everything was hard to come by. 
The bodies on the street contracted against the cold or the smell of stained pavement, and most of all, always each other. The January I moved to the city, there were four blizzards. My lover rode the train in on weekends, and we left the apartment only for sweaty thin slices they sold on the corner or the occasional bottle of wine. We were always hungry, and it seemed ineffable to us what it was we wanted, and then, of course, whether or not we could have it. I see that in you now, the way you hoard your pile of stolen seeds, your resistance, that glum desire. When we took things, like the man I once saw run out the door of the Associated Grocery on a hundred and third, canned goods dropping from his pockets and into the snowbanks, the heavy tuna and soup making neat little shafts where the light shone only dimly on their aluminum tops. They felt earned. Barn Elegy Before I'm through the door, I can hear them stomping in their stalls, feet shuffling in church below the chant of psalms. There's a brass plaque on each stall door, but I know them by the weight of their knees, the deep curve of withers, a gray forelock and its wide spate of freckles holy in their constellations. Saints have never looked so real. The warm flesh, alfalfa sweat slicking my fingers as I brush the corporeal coat, the laying on of hands, then bridal. Virgil canters the arena's soft groove, his large feet never stumbling, turning clods of dirt with his elegant hooves. Later, I will take them on my palm, and even though I hold the reins, I know I'm not the master here. The riding hat and crop, just a costume like any other, as simple as the plot of the fastened seatbelt, the small white pill, the deadbolt slid, or the angling forceps. I can't possibly save myself. But I can put a bit to Harley's lips, and he will take it on his tongue. I can tighten the girth around his ribs, and he will not move away from me. Lean into his shoulder until he lifts the jib of his leg and lets me take his right front hoof in my palm, unload his shoes of their heavy oil, let slip through my fingers their bitter worm-dark freight of soil. The Reno You never take me to the bar next to the trailer park, so I don't know if the men stand in circles at the pockmarked counter or if the women have their hair done in curls. I like to imagine that I could be one of them, that you could be the man brushing fine shuffleboard sand from his fingertips, a hidden birthmark like buckshot on your belly. The mirror in the bathroom might be cracked or scrawled with a Merle Haggard lyric, Ain't no woman gonna change the way I think. But from here, all I can see is neon, going on and off in the rain, the puddles in the parking lot splashing back the blinking marquee, food, beer, jukebox, a place to lift a cold glass to my lips and disappear the last of the gold down my throat. Just beyond our trailer, 
The sound of trains hitching and unhitching is thunder entering my ribs, and I want it. Fourth of July. If I have any romantic notions left, please let me abandon them here, on the dashboard of your Subaru, beside this container of gas station potato salad and bottle of sunscreen. Otherwise, my heart is a sugar packet waiting to be shaken open by some other man's hand. Let there be another town after this one, a town with an improbable Western name, wisdom, last chance, where we can get a room and a six-pack, where the fireworks end early, say nine o'clock, before it's really gotten dark enough to see them, because everyone has to work in the morning. I'm not asking for love anymore. I don't care if I never see a sailboat again. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.